My name is Jen Buchholz. I'm a forensics and criminal justice professor at American Military University, an Army veteran, and a criminal investigator for my local sheriff's department. I'm George Jarrett. I'm an investigative journalist and award-winning true crime author. Together, George and I are the lead investigators for AMU's cold case investigative team. This season, we're working to break the case for the family of Linda Malcolm. This podcast contains details and descriptions of actual homicide victims and their injuries, including sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. It's been a bit since we released a new episode on Linda's case. There's actually been a lot going on between the work of our team and the Port Orchard Police Department. We're not yet allowed to publicize the results of most of those investigative efforts, but in order to keep listeners as informed as possible, I recently got on the phone with George to discuss some aspects of the case that we can share. Hey, George, how are you doing? I'm good, Jen. How are you? I'm doing all right. It's been a while since we put out an episode on Linda's case, and so I just wanted to give listeners some updates. I just want listeners to know that just because we haven't had an episode come out in a little while doesn't mean we haven't been working on the case because we've actually done a significant amount of work in the last couple months and have connected with a lot of new people who knew Linda and knew a lot of critical information about her life and the days before her murder. So it's been incredibly helpful. I think the first thing we should talk about, because it's something people always ask about, is DNA and forensic testing. I think most listeners know that Evidence from Linda's case was resubmitted earlier this year for advanced forensic testing with new technology. And when we last met with the police a couple weeks ago, they informed us that they have started to get results back from the lab. And we're not privy to the specific results, but they did say it's provided new leads. So do you want to maybe give a little public service announcement or shout out if someone thinks their DNA might be in Linda's house, what they should do? Yeah, what they need to do is contact the Port Orchard Police Department so that they can eliminate them as a potential source for what we believe is some DNA evidence that has come back in this case. Uh, Very positive development. I think we've talked about it before. A development like this and a case this old, it's a huge one. Definitely. It's not something that's typical. And so what we need people to do who had contact with Linda in the weeks before she was heinously murdered in our own home is we need them to come forward and submit to DNA testing so that we can help further this process along. And also, if the killer wants to go ahead and come on in and and give his DNA and confess to what he did, he or she, uh, that'd be great too. Sure. We'll take that. And Jen, you had a face-to-face meeting with Paul Holes, and we've also been in continuous contact with our arson expert. And a couple of new revelations that I think we've come to in this case is that we are starting to believe that the killer may have killed Linda, left, and then came back to start the fire. So go ahead and tell our listeners a little bit about the conversation you had with Paul and some of the conclusions that we've come up with in the last couple of months. For listeners who aren't familiar with Paul Holes, he worked as a cold case investigator for the Contra Costa County District Attorney's Office in California for over 20 years. He is credited with identifying Joseph D'Angelo as the Golden State Killer who terrorized multiple communities in California for many years. Paul and his team were some of the first to use investigative genetic genealogy to identify the owner of an unknown DNA profile found at several of the crime scenes. That profile ultimately belonged to D'Angelo. 
D'Angelo was later convicted of multiple counts of homicide and kidnapping and is serving life in prison. I connected with Paul at CrimeCon and was able to meet up with him in person recently as he and I live in the same town. I also want to remind listeners that Alan Haskins is one of our volunteer investigators who serves on our team. He is an expert in fire and arson and is the director of the fire science program at Black River Technical University. We've also learned through talking to several experts in this field that, especially Paul and Alan, they had never ever worked a homicide case that involved arson where the body was not the point of origin for the fire because the point of the fire is to get rid of evidence and obviously the murder victim's body would be the treasure trove of evidence that could lead to the killer. And so our understanding is that the fire started probably at the furthest point in the house from her body. Well, as you said, Alan has done a great deal of work on Linda's case. For listeners who don't know, the Port Orchard Police Department and the local fire department offered him a non-disclosure agreement to sign in order for him to be able to view all of the investigative documents related to the arson aspect. And so he did sign that. My understanding is they mailed him a huge binder of information, and he has spoken with them at length, discussing his conclusions. We are not privy to that information at this point. Since Alan's under an NDA, he can't tell us any of those specifics, but we feel very good about the situation as long as they are working with Alan directly. That's all I care about. (laughs) But we do have our own set of crime scene photos. And before Alan went under the NDA, we spoke with him and talked through some of those photos and came to some conclusions that we can talk about, which you already mentioned. We knew right away that no accelerant was poured on her body. She actually was not that badly burned. And we could also tell from the photos that it did appear the fire was actually started in her living room, which, as you said, is about the furthest spot in the house from her master bedroom where her body was found. And so Alan had never worked a scene like that before where the body wasn't the point of origin. And everybody else we've talked to has said the same thing. And so going back to Paul Holes, George, when you and me, Melissa and Justin and our team was at CrimeCon, I made a point to seek out Paul Holes at his book signing because he lives in the same town as me. And I work for the sheriff's department in which he lives in our jurisdiction. So I thought, okay, since we live near each other, maybe he'd be willing to meet up with me to go through some of these details on Linda's case because he just has a wealth of experience. I mean, 30 plus years of various homicide investigation roles. So he agreed. And so I met with him last week and it was really eye-opening We met for about two and a half hours, primarily talked about Linda's case. He had done a bunch of research on it already, brought some notes with him, took a bunch more notes as we went through things. And the first thing I asked him, I said, have you ever worked a homicide arson where the body was not the point of origin? He said, nope. This is the first one that I even know about. Wow. So whatever it means, we may not know yet, but I guarantee that is a huge clue in this case that means something significant whether it's because the killer knew their own DNA was in the living room, dropped something maybe in the living room that they couldn't retrieve. There's a reason that the fire was set away from her. Now, (laughs) I bet everybody wants to know what Paul's theory was, so I will tell you. His theory, after we talk through a lot of the stuff, is that the killer and arsonist are two separate people. 
and that the killer fled the scene and then confessed to somebody that night. And the second person said, uh, you are going to get caught. Like you're in big trouble. We got to do something about this. And so that second person may have offered or just said, I'm going to go light the place on fire. And that would explain why the fire was started away from Linda's body, because the second person may not have known where her body was in the house. Or they don't want to go near the body. Mm -hmm. And so that could be a very plausible explanation as to why this fire was started so far away. Yes, there's very much a psychological aspect to any murder. And that may be the key to why the fire was set where it was, as you said, because the, the second person couldn't bring themselves you know, don't want to see a dead body. I don't blame them. Most people can't handle that. So that was really interesting. We debated the one versus two person theory for a while. And he made another really good point. He said, you know, the second person, if they only lit the fire, then they're considered an accessory. Now they could be charged with arson and accessory to murder. But if they know what they did, and that's the only role they played in this, come forward and tell the police that. Because I can almost guarantee the district attorney will go lightly on you or even give you an immunity deal in exchange for the truth. And Paul said he's had that happen in multiple cases where two people were involved. One eventually, for whatever reason, couldn't keep it to themselves anymore and they came forward. This just occurred to me. It's even possible if a second person lit the fire at Linda's house, they didn't even know that she was in there dead. You know, the, the original person could have just said, I'm so angry with her. I want to... I just want to do something, you know, and mm -hmm. for whatever reason, convince the person to go light a fire. I mean, it's probably lower on the list of possibilities, but it just occurred to me that the arsonist might not have even known she was in there. There's obviously a lot of different potential reasons for this anomaly, but it is an anomaly that is going to provide a big clue at some point. Imagine that we have a case where there's an anomaly, <laughs> right? Like something that no one's ever heard of before. Yep. And so Paul brought up that the murder itself, as we've been saying all along, was very unsophisticated. The person probably did not know what they were doing, was not well skilled with a knife. It's possible, like Jeff said, they'd had a little bit of training, maybe in the military or something. But overall, Paul, and I totally agree, said this crime didn't go down as planned. Otherwise, they would have got control of Linda much sooner. And there would be no reason to have stabbed her 24 times. He was also pointing out, which we've said at some point too, she's five foot two and like 105 pounds. She wouldn't be hard to overpower. So is it possible that a female is the perpetrator and that it was a more even fight, so to speak? And I told him, we can't rule out a female. We have not been able to do that. So we're looking at males and females. But he said to me, this encounter didn't go as planned. He said, if it had gone as planned, they wouldn't have needed to come back and lit a fire. So he also pointed out that for the fire aspect, the person had to have a plan. They had to bring an accelerant. If it's gas, they have to have a gas can. And it's the middle of the night on a Tuesday night, Wednesday morning. So I've actually talked to several locals who said they didn't think there was an all-night gas station in town back then. So if they use gas, where are they getting it from? And how are they transporting it to the scene? And then how are they gaining entrance to the house? Do they go through a door? All the windows are blown out. Do they go through a window? Who knows, right? But 
he said there's more planning involved with the arson aspect. But, but he said that's how it felt to him. I tend to agree with him just listening to some of the stuff that you guys talked about. It makes sense to me. In years past, I had talked to a prosecutor and he was charging two people with a set of murders that happened. And he made the argument in court that if you have two different modus operandi working, that could be indicative of there being two different people working. Mm -hmm. And just the fact that the stabbing is different than the arson. And what I mean by that is, is by the level of planning and the other things that Paul laid out, that actually makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, it did to me too, the way he phrased it. I like his ideas a lot. We had contemplated that there could be two people involved, but we never contemplated that one could have done the murder and then the other person could have been the arsonist. But, you know, he brings up some really good points about how the murder is a very clumsy, not well thought out crime, whereas the arson is more thought out. There is intentionality to some of the things that the arsonist did. And a good example of that is where the fire was started. There's a reason why the fire was started at that part of the house. I think that Paul's analysis is really, really spot on. And we obviously appreciate him taking the time to do that. Definitely. He's very sought after around the country for his expertise in a lot of these different things. And so for him to spend a couple of hours helping us with Linda's case, yeah. that's kind of help that we really, really appreciate and we need. Yeah, I was so beyond thankful because we always preach this. You and I can't think of everything. And we have extensive backgrounds and in investigations, but it doesn't compare to him. And one thing he brought up, which this is not a hit on any law enforcement agency, but I, I wanted to emphasize it. He said, it doesn't appear the police department has really put out much information about Linda's case. And I said, no, they haven't. And I said, but we encounter that in most our cases, like most agencies are reluctant to release much because they're scared that by doing so, it could possibly hurt the case. But he was explaining to me that after this many years, and again, this doesn't apply to just Linda's case or that investigating authority, but he's just like, after 16 years, they need to start releasing information because people die, people's memories fade. But if they put out some key details, that may jog someone's memory and bring new witnesses forward. And that's obviously exactly what we want. But he goes, my policy was always, okay, what are the two or three things that probably only the killer would know about this? Okay, those are what I'm going to hold back. But then over time, I'm going to start releasing this piece of information on that. And let's see who comes forward and what people have to say about it. Well, I've only been doing this for 20 years, and I can't agree with him more. I have never in all my life seen a scenario where the police release some information about a cold case, and then it somehow, some way came back to bite them in a way that they couldn't get an arrest or a conviction. I've, I've never seen it happen. Yeah. I've challenged law enforcement agencies around the country to give me some examples of it because I haven't seen any. However, just like Paul said, I have seen examples where some information does get released to the public and it actually spurs someone into action. Maybe someone who doesn't even know that they know, they don't know what they know. Mm -hmm. And so the more space you put between the now investigation and the actual event of the murder, you're just continually opening up the possibility that something's going to happen. Yeah. So I applaud him. He was in law enforcement for 30 years. Mm -hmm. And he's not coming at it from like my perspective as a journalist or your perspective as an investigator with your local sheriff's department or as a criminology professor. He comes from it 
from the perspective that we're trying to change the system from. Yes. He said something very much to that effect that this process in the country needs to change because it's crippling how many unsolved homicides we have. We're at like 280,000 that we know of. And holding back all the information has not solved those. When a crime is committed, clues live within digital devices. That's digital forensics. Learn how to process and analyze that data by earning a Bachelor's of Science in Digital Forensics from American Military University. Classes are online with monthly program starts. Learn more about AMU's Digital Forensics degree by visiting amuonline.com forensics. So, Jen, we were in CrimeCon in Orlando about six, eight weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And one of our objectives in going to CrimeCon was not actually to go to CrimeCon. A primary objective was to track down a person that was known to Linda. Yep. And we just bring this up because we've run into this before where we're unable to find a good working phone number for somebody or an email or they don't look at their Facebook Messenger or they don't have that app installed on their phone. And this is someone that we knew knew Linda very well in the months prior to her murder, but we were never able to get a hold of them. And I remember when we were like, okay, well, we're going to CrimeCon. And I said, we got to go find this person. I really, really want to pick their brain. And thankfully it worked. They were home, they invited us in, they were very cordial and we had a really nice discussion. So it's also, we never quit. And there are a lot of far lengths that we will go to to collect information on the case we're working. So that was really beneficial. And like you said, CrimeCon was fun. But for me, connecting with that person finally after a year was absolutely the highlight of my weekend. So I was so happy. Absolutely. You and I had talked about not just the police and law enforcement releasing some new details, but you and I are actually going to release a detail now. Yes. About this case. Yeah. That we need help with. Mm-hmm. We need further information. So, everybody who's listening now, please perk your ears. So, within a 24 hour period of Linda's murder, there were a couple of pornographic movies that were bought through her cable system. Yes. And Here's the thing. We don't know if they are significant or relevant or if this is just like a billing cycle thing. We don't know how this whole system works. Jen, you've actually got a copy of the bill sitting right in front of you right now. I do. So please tell our listeners what you need them to do in this regard. So we've had this bill for a year. Thank you to Linda's sisters for keeping all these documents and letting us have a copy. The pay-per-view rentals, we kept to ourselves, obviously, for quite a while because we weren't sure if they were pertinent to the case or not. We're at the point where we can't go any further on this aspect, and we're hoping somebody in the local community can help. So Linda had waived broadband for her cable company, and I believe that required you to have a physical cable box in your home. Let me tell you what the bill says. The bill has two pay-per-view pornographic rentals on April 30th, 2008. Now remember, Linda was killed either late in the night, April 29th, or early in the morning, April 30th. The very bothersome part is the timestamp. The timestamp is after Linda is dead. And I'm not going to give the exact timestamp. It is several hours after we know Linda has been found dead. So what we are trying to find out, number one, is if you had this particular cable company and their cable box, what did you actually have to do to order a pay-per-view movie? 
Could you do it through a remote control? Did you have to call a phone number and give a credit card? Please, if anybody can remember, let us know. Because we don't know whether, for whatever reason, the killer took her cable box from the scene and then used it in their own home to rent movies later that day. I mean, that seems really far-fetched, but this whole case has kind of far-fetched aspects to it. We don't know whether the timestamp is just very incorrect and maybe they were rented the night before. We don't know whether she had already turned in her cable box because she was moving. Maybe she had had to turn it in and somebody at the cable company took advantage of the fact that it was still an open account. Don't know. Please, if anybody has any insight or ideas on this, let us know. If somebody has some expertise in this process with this particular cable company and this equipment, because it may just be very simple. It might just be that the timestamp is is wrong when it's just very unbelievable coincidental timing that this erroneous timestamp appeared mm-hmm. right around the time of her murder or shortly after. If anybody worked at Wave Broadband and knows what time zone for sure the company build in, that would help. Because... I believe there's companies out there that just across the board, they always bill an Eastern time zone. I would really like to know if Wave Broadband used Pacific Coast time, East Coast time, whatever. So if anybody happens to remember that detail, it would be really helpful. And I want to say that these two purchases were out of the ordinary for Linda. Like her previous month's bills don't have any pay-per-view purchases. So it's not like this was a recurring habit for her. It appears to be a one-time, very possibly coincidental purchase. One more thing, it actually could have been an attempt at staging. So the killer may have hung out in the house afterwards and purposely purchased these two pornographic movies to make it look like Linda had company over that night when she may not have. But again, the timestamp is really troublesome because it's several hours after the fire. So if the killer did it, at the scene, then the timestamps, I guess, are very far off. Absolutely. One other thing that Yumi and Alan have been discussing recently is the lighting around Linda's house. I have consulted imagery from 2007, and there was a street light out front of Linda's house, but she also had at least one or two big trees on that side of the house, and it looks like some shrubs. So we're not really sure what the lighting situation was. If anybody happens to have any insight on how bright those streetlights are, because I think the same ones are still installed. I did talk to the neighbors again about their outdoor lighting situation. They recalled that actually the driveway area they shared with Linda was usually very dark. They remembered Linda having this old kind of barn light on the outside of her detached garage, but they said it was really old and dim. So they didn't feel that there was a lot of ambient light around the house. And obviously this is something that we've been thinking about because Alan said, did this person bring a flashlight or what? Like, how were they able to particularly to light the fire? Because if you come back and you get in the house, you probably don't want to turn any lights on, but you got furniture and stuff. You're going to trip over. We were just kind of wondering out loud about would there have been enough ambient light from the street light or elsewhere to illuminate it to where they could see well enough. So if anybody lived on Sydney Avenue or has any ideas about that, let us know. Another point of contention that we've been discussing is the time frame of setting the fire. And Jen, I think that we've come to the conclusion that this was a pretty quick action because we know that the newspaper carrier showed up 
at a certain point that morning and the fire hadn't been started. And we know that 13 minutes after the newspaper carrier came, the fire was raging and the newspaper carrier never noticed anything. So I guess what we're trying to figure out right now is did the killer just get lucky that no one saw them uh, or the arsonist? I guess we got to frame it differently now. Yep. <laughs> we'll just say arsonist for clarity. But did the arsonist show up and start this fire and were they just lucky that no one saw them or was it just like the perfect amount the perfect timing where they went in did what they were going to do and they left and then the newspaper carrier showed up and didn't see the fire or they came right after Mm -hmm. it could be that the person knew linda well enough that knew that she was getting a paper delivered every morning and knew about what time yes which that would obviously be a huge clue because that means they know linda very well yes i struggle to believe that they got that lucky that they were able to get a house engulfed in flames it's not the 13-minute window for that part, but the fact that nobody saw them. <laughs> that right. We know a couple goes by delivering newspapers, and this person isn't spotted. They obviously didn't pull into Linda's driveway at 3.30 in the morning, so they had to leave on foot either to a local residence or wherever their car was parked. And it's just astounding to me that nobody heard or saw anything, but it is a time of night when most people aren't up. So any thoughts on that would be surely welcomed. Well, George, I'm going to be seeing you soon. Yep. Because somehow I always have to go to Arkansas. We have to find a case in Colorado because... I've never been to your house ever. You have never been to Colorado to visit me. And every time I go to your place, I'm like, I'm never coming here again. You got to quit saying it because you know what? If you don't quit saying it, you're going to have to keep coming back. I know. For listeners who have any interest in our Rebecca Gould case, I will be back in Arkansas the last week of November and early December because a show is producing an episode on her case. And we've been talking to producers for, I don't know, a few months now. They're super interested in the forensics behind Rebecca's murder, how George and me and Catherine Townsend came to meet and kind of come together as a team along with Rebecca's dad. They're actually super interested in doing an episode on Linda's case once there's an arrest made. So we've already put the bug in their ear. And they actually asked us, do you have other cases you guys have worked that are like this? And I said, well, we're in the middle of one right now. And I think you'll find it very interesting. And they they are really interested. So they're keeping tabs. It's funny with Rebecca's case, it's been adjudicated. There's been an arresting conviction. But yet we always say to each other, we're not quite done yet. (laughs) We still don't know the whole story. So we've got a little ways to go. We are far from the true story, but that should just be a good lesson to anybody in the future. We decide to tackle a case that we're never going to stop. Yeah. Well, thanks for taking some time out of your day to chat about this, George. I really look forward to hearing any kind of feedback that anybody has on these topics that we brought up today. Absolutely. George, enjoy the rest of your day. As soon as we have more updates on Linda's case, we'll be sure to put them out. We do have more episodes planned and we're working on those. So thank you to everyone. All right, George, we'll talk soon. Take care. See you, Jen. All right, bye. Bye. This podcast is brought to you by American Military University. Narrated and produced by Jen Buchholz with co-host and investigative journalist, George Jared. Senior producers, Leeshan Kranick, Andy Crow, and Kristen Kretzler. Sound engineering and editing by Harvest Creative Services. Subscribe to Break the Case on iHeartRadio, Google, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.